I feel like we should have made a lot of different decisions at the beginning of this this podcast. Probably something that's less awkward to pronounce. Geeks um, cast. Geeks cast doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. It's a we could have. We could have both rapped to Big Pun to do our introduction. We could have done a little dead in the middle of Little Italy. Little did we realize the middleman who didn't do diddly. You know, Look, I trip. I trip over my tongue there. enough as it is, just trying to speak normal words. You think that, you know, I can I can rap in any capacity? There's there's a reason that I keep my eloquence strictly within the written format. Spike Lee couldn't paint a better picture. Blowing out brains, getting richer. You know, that's that's what I'm on today. <laughs> I imagine with your. Uh, your, your poetic sense for pronunciation, you could come up with all sorts of uh, rhymes for, for our show here. If you ever hear me mispronunciate anything, it's just my poetic eloquence that I'm just uh, turning the word over in my mind. And You know, you know language, language is a very fluid thing. You know, it was built to be uh, transformed and, you know, modified. Trampled with... over? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, that too. You know, it's it's not permanent. Nothing is set in stone. You know, yeah. the meanings of words change all the time. The way we say things, you know, it's all about dialects and regional differences and stuff. You know, so don't get don't get bit out of shape if we, um, you know, just totally disregard your culture. If we say cowtiard enough, she'll start pronouncing it cowtiard. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> That's that's how it works. You know, my my last name wasn't always this, you know, spelt this way. You know, it was, it was a French origin and they, you know, Pinch, they changed right? it. They, they, yeah, they Americanized it over time. And so, you know, it's it's just the cycle of life. It's inevitable over here. You know, we're just our way of life is so imposing that that it has to bend to everything. Apparently, that's that's what my my high school taught me anyway. That's what history, you know, well, I'm told is that the, the American way is the only way. I'm uh, Calvin Kemp, and uh, happy to be here with David, um, David Poonch. Uh, very happy that you joined us on the show. That's yeah, that's, a, that's another great example, David. It's a that's a transformative name across many different languages. Mm -hmm. But yeah, happy to be here for Twin Geeks Cast One Hundred Something Something. <laughs> I didn't check beforehand, so uh, one thirty-one uh, this week. We're one thirty-one. Yeah, that's what I said. Rate. That's what I said. Yeah. Point Break. Yes, uh, finally, we're we're here, and we're actually going to talk about this film. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it feels been... good, doesn't it? Like you're good and alive. <laughs> yeah. it's been a rocky road getting here. But first, uh, as usual, we have different subjects to talk about because we are not uh, a podcast of single films. First, I should talk about how cold I am in August. Um, I it's barely got... <laughs> it's barely August. It's still kind of August. It won't be yeah. August by the time this comes out. So this segment won't make any sense to people listening. I just got back from La Quinta and I'm uh, freezing my ass off in Seattle now uh, because it was 120 degrees. Now it's 50 degrees here, uh, and my skin's acclimated toward that. Uh, we had a, we had a lovely vacation. We, we recorded a show out there while I was there. Um, beautiful was... Palm Springs, uh, the Palm Desert air, hot air kind of knocked out my cold. Though I have a little congestion still. It's a real bastard of a cold. Uh, yeah, doing good. Yeah, glad to, glad to have you back here in good old, perfectly safe Seattle. Yeah, um, yeah it is it's a little chillier up here now, but that's that's how we like it. So, you yeah. know, we're, we're happy to to wish the summer goodbye. We're here for the, the rain clouds and the... The, the, the foggy temperatures and such. You I know, gave my to... I gave my heater a close look this morning. I, I nearly <laughs> did it in August, and I just couldn't commit to it. Uh, once the calendar turns over to nine, I think I the ninth month. I feel like that's a that's enough advancement in the year. 
I could start thinking about 40 degrees. We'll see if we get there at night. That's 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 when it's fair game to turn on the the space heater. Until then, you know, you you got to kind of stick through it, wear your hoodies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so right. it'll be a, a chilly uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, it's chilly, kind of kind summer. of ironic for the the big summer vibes movie that we have as our subject this week, but you know. Uh, we're we're squeezing it in here. We're just making it under the <laughs> under the line there. Uh, perhaps it's more fitting for our autonomous uh, first film, Candyman, uh, reigning in the uh, Halloween and the autumn season with a little bit of horror, a little bit of a uh, candy coated horror. I'm so, I'm so mad. I just want to say I'm I'm getting upset at how early thing things are coming in. They brought in pumpkins <laughs> to our store already last week, I mean, and I'm. And I'm, I'm so frustrated by that that it's 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 fucking August and and we're already having pumpkins out and I'm I'm no just wait at least until September we need to stop jumping the gun on it here you're making Halloween less special although if you find one of them giant skeletons I think any time of year is time to yeah commit. no you uh, you you've got to get that giant Home Depot skeleton as soon as you can just because of the the you know how fast it's selling out and the and the, the, the demand of it and now that we have yeah. now now that we have a house I'm excited. We're going to get that. We're going to hunt down Fuck that 12 yeah. foot skeleton. We're going to put him in the front yard. We're going to put like a child in his hands to, yes. to be eating and devouring and, and have it on display in the front yard. We're going to scare the shit out of all the old people who That's live great. near us now. Um, is it only old people? Are there neighborhoods? Will you get trick or treaters? Is that even on the table this year? I think it is. Uh, I think I think so. Uh, it's a it's a neighborhood, and we're a little deeper into the neighborhood. Like we're not like right off the main street or whatever. But because it's a neighborhood and a safe area, and you know, populated with houses with older people who are probably you know still still have the Halloween spirit. Very generous. I'm, opt- I'm optimistic that kids will come walking down, especially since we're right around the corner from a high school. So like this is an area I'm sure the children are familiar with so they'll probably head down this way i i I certainly hope so i love halloween still i i want it to stay alive as a tradition we're going to keep it alive our entire lives uh what ezra does i think is uh, beyond me but as a halloween ish baby an october baby she'll keep it alive you know what i think we have to do we have to reverse engineer halloween if it keeps going down this trajectory we're gonna have to start bringing candy to other people's houses yeah I think that's going to have to be the new tradition if it keeps slipping like it has been year after year. <laughs> Ezra still hasn't done like a proper house to house trick or treat like within our memory because of the last two years. So uh, at five years old, I'm I'm really ready for her to engage with that and try it out. Do you, do you have her costume picked out this year already? Uh, she's gone through a hundred ideas. She keeps leaning into Wizard of Oz. I think it would be funny if our whole family did Wizard of Oz. That, Are you uh, gonna? You, well, you have to be Dorothy then. Obviously. Yeah, I would obviously, because um, we're not in Kansas anymore. I I would have to be Dorothy. <laughs> I think I think that's the only appropriate costume decision that you can go with. Anyway, yeah. little early to be talking about Halloween plans still, but not <laughs> not quite because we have Candyman. Which yeah, is, uh, yeah. I want to hear about the, Candyman <laughs> delivering the uh, Halloween goods a little bit early. Is Nia DaCosta? Uh, which she made news this week. She was the first uh, female black director to ever get number one. We had a, a few that came close, like Selma was number two, and uh, a couple in our past that were number two. But uh, our whenever first, I number one. Whenever I see those headlines, instead of being excited, I just get sad because I'm like, that didn't happen yet. Yeah, that seems like it should have happened 
already. And 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 so I just I feel like this sense of defeat instead of like celebration. I'm like, oh uh, yeah, the system's still pretty rigged, isn't it? You see what it took too, which is the movie more anchored to maybe Jordan Peele's name than her own. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's that's like the big thing is like it it was deceptive advertising. I don't, I don't know Peele's. deceptive. Like he is a co-writer. You watch the movie, even the visual things are like within his language. Uh, a lot of it's from like us. You see like the mirror reflections and kind of these Peelian ideas. A Peelian is what we're using. Peelian, God. Um, <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I, I'm on board with that though more than you are. I think the, I, the man's, the man's got us, two films so. to his name, and we're already attributing a, a stylistic <laughs> nomenclature to him. God, yeah, for this <laughs> modern black horror that he's kind of developing and developed even on his Keen Peel show. You look at that show though, and we have like you know a hundred examples of how he could go with horror. He'd always end his skits that way, and um, he has a sense of humor in his horror that, that hasn't been around as much lately uh, because we went into like that hostage and torture porn uh, section of horror for about 10 years, of the widest section of horror we've ever had. Um, I'm, I'm glad to escape that and get more back to the roots of the cheesy, uh, sometimes bad, but sometimes okay movies. I, I think horror should be bad to a certain degree. I think there should yeah. be a, a certain amount of of in, incredulous <laughs> elements to to horror movies for sure. So yeah, I think modern horror is in a decent position now. Yeah, uh, it's it's waned a little bit in the past couple of years. Uh, I would I would probably say it's getting a little clean and a little too mainstream, perhaps. But no. o- overall, better sense than it has been for the last couple decades yeah for sure uh since uh i'd say maybe the scream era it hasn't been so good as it is now so even uh, then i would say scream was yeah. kind of like a a, a, a blip highlight in, yeah you might look like of... mid 80s <laughs> you might even look uh, mm, uh maybe before the original Candyman, which was in 1992 and that that might also be a blip where it's uh, uh bernard rose making uh the excellent um Candyman with uh, uh, Tony Todd, who uh, became like a, a underground cult horror hero. Uh, mm-hmm. Very iconic look, and I think that's enough to make a movie out of. Uh, I think people are excited just to have Candyman back. Uh, yeah, even, even despite a couple of bad sequels, they just want these things back. Candyman's always been kind of like a cult property. Uh, I guess like particularly the first film that really captured the imagination of you know the the community, the horror community, and such. Uh, and it's always been. Uh, analyzed with kind of you know a certain amount of reservation like it's not a perfect film but what it puts forth is really interesting and worthwhile and you know of you know of intrinsic value particularly as a work of uh, of black property you know in in its concepts uh so to to revive it for for modern audiences has certainly been something i think that has have had a lot of promise surrounding it particularly with jordan peele's name attached you know and a different voice to, to bring it here but my uh, my understanding is that the overall result is perhaps not living up to expectation. Um, I I think if you, we should get into what it is first. Sure, think, sure. Which is that, um, Yaya Dolmatin II, um, the second, uh, his character is an artist and working within his girlfriend's art gallery. Um, and his girlfriend, played by Tiana Paris, uh, she uh, sets up this gallery of his work. And he has an exhibition because he found out about the old artist. The story of Candyman is that he was like a 19th century artist. And uh, he died tragically and came back to haunt a gentrified section of Chicago, right? So um, 
that's sort of the same premise here. He's looking into that. He's portraying in his art. He made an exhibition with a mirror. And then you open the mirror and you see behind it these paintings of Candyman slaying people in a dark room. Um, and, and he challenges people to come up to the mirror, say Candyman five times, which uh, shit, I don't mess with. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, when I moved to Ohio, like one of my first days of school, I uh, the, this kid asked me to go into the bathroom with him. And I was like, sure, yeah. He's like, okay, we just have to say this Bloody Mary thing five times. And then uh, someone had uh, tricked us and they locked the door to the bathroom, <laughs> turned out the light. And there's no way to get the light on from the inside of this old, like, uh, you know, old Ohio brick building that wasn't modernized. Lights on the outside. I don't know what they were doing. Um, but yeah, we were we were stuck in there for like 15 minutes and a little bit terrified because I, I didn't really know what to expect. You kind of just want to leave that situation once you chanted into a mirror trying to incant ghosts to come haunt you. I'm 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 happy to hear that you had like a genuine experience with that phenomenon instead of like an underwhelming and like you know like like dumb kind of realization that nothing was going to come of it. Well, it's, I was scared shitless too because it was like sure. my first second day at school, and I'm like, is it always going to be like this? Am I just going to be like a butt of jokes? But but that was like the one time, and then you know I befriended all the tough football players, and I was fine. Like that was you know, but still, it's, I I had that traumatic experience around this very idea. Hmm. Oh, it's, it's good to hear that it had some legs for somebody then. <laughs> <laughs> so but, uh, what what really happens is someone conjures it at the museum after everyone's gone away. The shitty uh, white um, art dealers there, there and his girlfriend, uh, they, they challenge each other to look into the mirror before they have sex and they're going to conjure Candyman and he's going to slaughter them. And um, it's very imbalanced the way that it portrays horror, but it is Pelian. So um we do get around to some of those same uh, uh, visual gimmicks. Uh, flies within a mirror and um, um, Martin II looking into a mirror and seeing Candyman reflect back of himself. Um, it, I, it could fit into like the same horror universe as like an Us or Get Out, which is nice. Uh, I, I feel like it has that same visual weight to it. I think I think PLS weight uses music well. I think this does too. But it's so imbalanced. And um, eventually it gets to... Uh, the ending it is a 90 minute movie which is refreshing for horror modern horror mm-hmm. uh we stretched everything to two hours lately so uh, to have 30 minutes less is nice um it, i mean it, it's fine it's it's perfectly fine it's serviceable i'm glad that a, a female black director has a very popular horror i always want to see women directing horror so I, i'm very happy whenever that happens and it's successful 22 million is nothing to sneeze at really right now at the box office that I mean, that tells me it could have made, you know, real bank outside of right now. Uh, I, I mean, I, they should feel proud just to that number. Do, but the, do you know, uh, does it have a, a side-by-side release with streaming? I, I'm not aware. No, it doesn't. I don't believe this one does. That's a that's good to know. I think that might also be a contributor to its increase in box office. Yeah. Because uh, I, I think that model is detrimental to you know, uh, any box office uh, going forward, you know, for, yeah. for other films. And we're seeing, likewise, if you can have it, if not at the same time, then very soon after on a streaming platform, nobody's going to go see it. It seems like Godzilla was the anomaly there, where it was released on both and made bank and nothing else has. So uh, The Quiet Place did all right, I believe, but uh, not much else is really, you know, uh, done without staggering that release window. It exists for a good reason. Um, mm-hmm. uh, just to get people into theater, I did go see it in the desert in like a, an old regal. Uh, my favorite part of that was looking on the face back and realizing that uh, 
a guy took a, a selfie with the free guy poster wearing the same clothes as Ryan Reynolds. And that became their header for the whole poster because they have nothing else. Um, that was good. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, very quiet uh, theater. Two people walked out and two people were left with me. Um, the other people at the end said, uh, that's it. That's that's the whole fucking movie and just ran out the, the door. <laughs> I was the only one to stay for credits. I always stay for credits. I, I sometimes don't. The last time I went to a theater, like just on, on Saturday, uh, I stayed for the whole time and I realized I never I never sat through the credits of that movie. I went and saw Jaws at the theater on Saturday, which was revelatory to see on the big screen. I wonder uh, if it was as good as Candyman in the theater. <laughs> It was probably better, especially since there were definitely people in that audience who had not seen Jaws and they were having the oh, time, wow. yeah. time of their lives. Like when when the the, the shark first makes that uh, unexpected entrance, you know, and you know, come down here and jump some of this shit. Like they <laughs> people jumped and it was great. Yeah, good, but like I I sat through. I was just soaking in the film for a moment afterwards, uh, waiting for other people to shuffle out of the, the seats. You know, when the credits were rolling, and I, and I was watching. I sat through the whole way, and I'm like, oh, that final shot over the beach. You know where uh, you know where the credits are rolling. It's actually a shot of of Brody and Hooper like getting back to shore. It's not just like a <laughs> a peaceful beach shot at the end of the movie. Yeah, because I'm I'm a bad person who doesn't sit through the credits at home. I, I usually because I finish up a movie pretty late at night and I'm yeah, like, okay, time time for bed. Got to clean up everything here and go and, and get in quickly. So sometimes I, you're surprised what you find though. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to see. Uh, that anyway divergent observation there yeah. but yeah so well um, at the end of it the i mean the movie is just like uh tell everyone about it like that's a, that's a good final line in a movie that's a good point in a horror um i like the whole theme of say his name especially around uh the black lives matter protests and where we're saying you know say their name say their name yeah. um, i think that that resonates very well with like a modern thing and moves it into the modern day very well i think neo da costa handles all that pretty pretty decently um at the end there is a, a point with the police it's like i haven't seen horror in the theater for so long i was just overjoyed to be there for it uh but but there's like a loud bang of a gun i'm like man i'm so glad i experienced this here at the very least and then uh i'm trying not to spoil the ending but uh right but well, I, I, I definitely happen. get that I was gonna say I definitely get that sense where you agree, you know, where you're saying where horror is more effective in the theater. Like that, that was also kind of a revelation I had watching Jaws, which is a movie that who, whose horror elements kind of get buried uh, by by the more kind of spectacular, adventurous Spielbergy elements. But uh, the horror move, moments definitely played like horror in the theater for what felt like the first time viewing it there. So. Uh, definitely, uh, I get that sense that you know uh, horror movies best play in a, in a in a dark room on a big screen with an audience full of unsuspecting you know individuals around you. Jaws too, also one of the first movies where they had AC in the theater, and it was a summer movie, obviously, so it drove people inside, and that was like the popularization of the summer blockbuster in that way in an air conditioned summer controlled area, which was a uh, I think very key to its success after it being a popular beach read already. Have mm -hmm. you read Jaws? But, yes but yes you have read it it's very trashy it's trashy yeah, yeah it's real <laughs> it's, trashy it's not really a good novel and so not many like changes yeah. so so many changes were done for for the better it's like it's a miracle of alteration and how it just works for the the screen i think it's a lot we covered in our jaws episode we'd probably be talking about it today instead if we didn't already we cover already it. done it. yeah yeah but um 
Definitely, it was it was uh, sensational to see in theater. Uh, particularly enhancing all of the things I love about it, the the environmental aspects. I felt like I was underwater most of the movie, <laughs> which was uh, a a wonderful sensation to have uh, back at the theaters and w one of the most improved, you know, viewings I can think of, which is saying something because I I, I fucking love Jaws. So, in that same week as my. Uh... Bloody Mary incident. I had seen Jaws for the first time. Um, so we had just moved to Ohio. We had we just moved away from the water. But uh, because of that, I wanted my whole bedroom painted like the ocean. And I had like this uh, wallpaper of sharks and shit. And I, I went to sleep and I woke up just like in a, in a cold sweat, like looking around my room, like uh, like I felt actual fear from Jaws uh, as a as a young kid. And and I was must have been like 10 or 11 at that point. And I, I was just like, why the fuck did I do this ocean theme and then watch Jaws the same day? I was terrified of my room for a little bit. I'll, I'll, I'll say one other thing on my Jaws tangent here because we can't get too off track. But one of the, one of the other really effective things that, that stuck out, especially with the audience there who hadn't seen things, was the the uh, the gore of the film, the very limited amount. Like when you see that leg, that bloody leg sink to the bottom of the ocean early on in the film, people were so really... Good. People were, were, were shocked by that. So they, they they really like you know gasped when seeing that, and it is effective. It is something that you don't see in more uh, the kind of more sanitized film, both of Spielberg's later career and you know just in, in in movies in general. Like it's got some real grit to it where it needs to, and that helps make the 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 thrill of it all the more effective. Anyway, enough about that. Yeah, I've become very <laughs> interested by the people who choose to make horror. Like I think about Spielberg making horror and. Uh, what he made afterwards and whether or not we'll ever get another Spielbergian horror or, uh, or the, if we're just stuck with Peelian ones. The closest you get is you get the bit of poltergeist uh, in the 80s, which is... Yeah, that's a long like, time ago. Yeah, it's like... Well, and then also, like, there's lots of horror elements in Jurassic Park, but that's also, like, 30 years ago, so... <laughs> but then I listened to this interview with Nia DaCosta, and she's like, yeah, I didn't really want to make any horror. Uh, that's mostly Jordan Peele's bag, so... Uh, I was a little bit unenthused with her uh, commitment to the genre and not wanting to make more. She's like, yeah, I got a bunch of scripts and all of them were bad. I don't want to make more horror. So she's making Captain Marvel 2, which sounds crazy <laughs> to me. But, okay. Yeah, yeah that, that seems like a much more fruitful trajectory. It's uh, a <laughs> yeah. th There's a lot more to sink your teeth into there. I a guess. lot more money to sink your teeth into. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just... I. I lost a little bit of my admiration for her making a, this big horror movie. And I do think Jordan Peele is being touted for good reasons. Uh, I, I do think whatever horror is in it, that he brings the visual identity of that. And uh, she does a lot, I would believe too, in the social identity of the film and resonating as a black woman and uh, framing that in a way that um, a man, a white man, especially, but a black man might not. Um, so that's, that's interesting. I'm glad she got the project. I'm less glad that she's doing Captain Marvel 2. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm less glad that they're doing a Captain Marvel 2 in general. I'm sure yeah. it will be better than Captain Marvel 1 at this point because it is her. And I, I mean, I, I, I would stock in that. I'm just, uh, I'm pretty done. I'm pretty done Marvel movies in general. I've been saying for a while, but there was a brief moment watching the new Spider-Man trailer where I was like, <laughs> maybe, maybe I want to see this. And I was like, ah, Al Alfred Molina. Oh, maybe this does appeal to me. I'm like, no, no, it's just nostalgia talking, David. Get over it. It's not going to be anything good. They're, they're not doing Spider-Man stories. This is some weird shit. <laughs> I'm probably going to see the Raimi one, but even this new one, I turned down the screener for, and I, I don't know, I turned down the Suicide Squad screener. I'm kind of distancing myself from writing about them, at least. 
So Look, if, nice. if Scarlett Johansson couldn't save Black Widow for you, for you, nothing uh, else will. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think you're just done, and that's fair. I, mean, I think, I think it's time to usher out this this age. Um, I think it's time for a new most popular thing this year. That seems to be John Wickian stories, where they're uh, I'm I'm using an a lot. John Wickian, Pelian. I just add it to work. Yep. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's uh, great. John Wick, every other movie. Are... Every other movie's become John Wick in the action genre, less superhero stuff. Uh, that stuff's not succeeding either. Black Widow didn't do well. Suicide Squad did abysmally. So we'll see. Maybe it's out on the way out. Yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see how things go. <sighs> are there any other new movies, or is it time to to revive my documentary discourse? Oh no, it's it's a documentary discourse time. I, I don't have time for. Oh, this one's films. this one's actually. I believe we we've got a dual documentary discourse. Not in the sense that I brought two documentaries because that's demanding too much of me here. Come on, David's but, dual documentary discourse. But like. but because uh, I guess uh, I've convinced Calvin to talk about this documentary with me. We're um, we're talking. Are are you saying it's Calvin cellular Calvin celluloid closet on? David Stuhl documentary discourse. Fuck, that was hard to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Try saying that five times. <laughs> yeah, so the, the 1995 documentary, The Celluloid Closet. Oh, even I fucked it up. It's just a hard word. Cell, yeah. Celluloid. 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 All right. Uh, about the, the kind of history of gay representation and depiction in Hollywood films from its inception to the you know mid 1990s when the film came out yeah which uh in in that sense uh, it's it's pretty comprehensive maybe a couple of oversights uh i would say but it does a good job i think of stringing together a a pretty consistent history of development from like edison days you know where, where they they kind of they show the clip of the two men dancing in the experimental <laughs> film and I'm like yeah yeah, I guess that counts. It's, you know, where, where you know, they, they could be liberal with the definition, but they kind of had to be in the early days where it's like you literally couldn't, you know, also couldn't like two, say it, but you two, two men dancing together. In that particular case, I'm like, this is probably more like they only had dudes around, but they wanted a shot of people dancing. So, you know, for their test footage. So that's what they did, uh, as opposed to the, the great clip they use in the introduction from the Al Jolson film Wonder Bar where a man cuts in on a dance and dances with the, <laughs> and dances away with the man instead of the woman. And, and Jolson says, Oh, boys will be boys. That's, that's a pretty great opening clip to kind of capture the vivacious spirit of the, the pre-code era and how much more explicit the, the, those films generally were than even a couple years after the fact where the code just kind of came in and slammed the door shut on everything. I think um, it, it is focused around kind of like a gay tragic archetype. I think that it could probably use um, more focus on the time that um, it wants to focus on, which is early stuff through the 50s, honestly. So. It reminded me of another documentary that I've talked about and reviewed for the site, uh, actually. Disclosure uh, Skin, maybe? Skin, yeah. It was called Skin, I believe. A uh, History of Sex at the, the Movies. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think that's the name of it. I'm having a hard time looking it up on IMDb now because that's a very vague title. It's like skin history of nudity in the movies or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, it came out just like last year or I think it was last year. Anyway, in, in the sense that they're similar in the sense that that also has a very interesting and enlightening history of early Hollywood and depictions of these things that you 
probably don't know about. It's like, oh, this has actually been around kind of for a little while, despite your, you know, preconceptions of, you know, what was was a lot of the movies and how they kind of got around that in different ways. But once it gets up to more modern interpretations, particularly post-code, where where the limitations were entirely unshackled, uh, it it doesn't dive quite into the the depths that it should, particularly when it comes to the the repercussions of the kind of depictions that were still being put forth. Um, although I will say that the celluloid closet does a much better job of de- depicting a wider array of examples and talking about the ramifications and the different um, ter- bad examples and and you know how that reflected particularly on people at the time. Uh, one one. A really good example, I thought, was the the one uh, gay man that they had who was talking about his experience watching Otto Preminger's Advise and Consent, which was uh, in the 60s and one of the first films to depict a, a, a gay bar. And the seediness with which it's shot, you know, reflected on him. And he had this you know personal anecdote of, you know, shame that then he then felt for, you know, seeing that way. And, and so that is one moment in the film where I feel like, ah, yes, you've, you've captured the sense of, of effect that these films have projecting an idea on the popular culture and how pervasive and influential that can be, that it has a genuine impact on everyday people like this and how they perceive themselves. But it's, it's like one moment in a larger span of the film. Um, for me, like the most resonant moments, the Marlene Dietrich moment where uh, she's wearing the suit and everything. And, and they talk about um, that's attractive for a man and it's attractive for a woman that pleases everyone. But then you look at the uh, male homosexuality that's explored and they talk about um, how men kind of envision it being them and they're not able to uh, accommodate watching that. And they need men uh, not to be so sensitive and, and to be bolder and stronger on the on the screen, which I uh, maybe part of it um i i feel like because of the cutoff in 95 we're just getting to like the the new queer cinema of the 90s is popularly called which is um incorporating everything from like gus van sant to more experimental stuff from outside us um um but i feel like the the gay cinema exists more strongly than it ever has um i mean moonlight won an oscar for fuck's sake but but it's segmented like you have specifically like gay interest movies and then you have populist movies that are um, almost regressively saying like, oh, we put a gay character into our Marvel movie now. And it's just like one line, right? Like it's such a regression onto even the innuendo of the pre-code and code movies that uh, it feels like we've gone back in time and uh, we make little jokes now in, in the movies. They're very quippy again. The, the sense of humor is quip and innuendo lace as though Marvel movies were uh, following some kind of code, which they probably are, but it's a corporate code. Um, Mm-hmm. I, I just feel like the populist movies have kind of failed what the 90s were allowing us to do. It's There's definitely certain sects where it does feel, like you said, more regressive and in a sense, because they go over some of the caricatures that, that uh, gay men in, in particular were depicted with in the early uh, days of Hollywood, uh, you know, ranging from your your sissy types that they, they kind of demonstrate versus the, the kind of corrupted, evil, flamboyant types like your your uh, Peter Lorre characters in the Maltese Falcon, who's exceedingly coded as gay. Yeah. And and that is linked with his uh, malevolence, essentially. And that's a that's a recurring stereotype, you know, in like they like several Hitchcock films. They, they use the examples. Uh, that that was one omission I didn't mind. Like they they focus on rope, which is the obvious one. But then the those same ideas are also 
prevalent in uh, Strangers on a Train. But it's like, you got the one Hitchcock film, that's fine. You don't yeah. have to go into all of them. And they also cover it in Rebecca, which I think is interesting. So they have both sides of the queer coin there that they're covering. And I think that's that's one other good thing that the documentary does, is that it'd be very easy to focus solely on male homosexual depictions, but it does a pretty good job of balancing it out with, with female depictions as well and talking about the discrepancy in their reception. So in that regard, I think it's, it's successful. But I, I also agree with your sentiment that you, you expressed to me that there is a certain ceiling that these kind of overview documentaries <laughs> yeah. can have. Like, it's nice to have all of those visual examples and then testimonies thrown together. But it's it's pretty like boilerplate in that presentation. Like, you can only do so much with that format. You're very con constricted by what you can do. It's just clip, you know, talking head, clip, talking head. And I mean, it, you don't like, get much uh, opportunity to explore the format of documentary outside of that. In the talking head clip show that doesn't have like a narrative arc or uh, even a story arc where it's going somewhere. Um, yeah, that, that might have like a ceiling of like a six out of 10 for me. Like there might not be room above that for it to go. It's, it's uh, not necessarily like a rating deal for me. It's more so, a, you know, this is the most this documentary can be. It's still yeah. confined to this format. It can't explore perspective any farther than that and uh generally speaking that's also just a confinement of like the historical documentary because you're bound by what has happened in recounting that versus Although, an, an exploration of a person or character historically at least with figures and events you have like a story there right like you're you're leading to something and you're using the past to tell a whole narrative of something i don't feel like this tells the whole story of like the the people who were in the gay films, the actors that became, you know, that's, came out as gay and all of that. I, that, I don't feel that, like it tells the whole history. I definitely agree with that. Is that the in order to fit everything in, it it really narrows the scope of the story, particularly because it's like it's a documentary about the history of um, depiction of, of gay characters in Hollywood films and mainstream yes, yes. Hollywood films in particular. The underground gay, you know, film scene is entirely ignored. No Kenneth Anger, no John Waters mentioning there. No Rocky no. Horror, which is absurd. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they they make, and one of the things is that they kind of break their rule a little bit because they reference a couple of British films to give context to things, but the rest of world cinema is entirely ignored. There's no mention of other depictions out there. It's, it's very American-centric in that, which again is it's fine, but it's, you're only getting a piece of the puzzle there, and it doesn't feel like it's, you know, it, it feels like it's purporting still a, a larger sense of the scale than it is, because it's talking about the influence of depictions of, of homosexuality on the public, while, while also trying to have it confined just to these mainstream Hollywood films. Because again, there's there was certainly a huge impact that other pieces of cinema other aspects of world cinema and underground cinema had on on gay culture and particularly how gay culture interacted with the movies um you know and how they resonated with and responded to that and sought out solace in certain performers or characters you know they overlooked the rich history that the gay community had with the likes of judy garland or joan crawford you know and the various stars rock hudson that they come there is a little bit where they talk about rock hudson and the interesting facet of him being a gay man and, you know, a fairly openly gay man pretending to be, you know, acting as a straight man who is then in the film context of the film pretending to be a gay man to get closer to Doris Day. But it's good. Yeah, it's it's like these are just like snippets that you really of, of like a larger picture that the film really should have explored. You know, it's a it's a vast topic 
that uh, the film doesn't get into all of. There's the you know there's a bigger scope, and uh, to its detriment, it's not giving credence to those things. Even as a '95 uh, study of of gender and, and uh, um, sexuality in film, I don't think it's that uh, progressive. Uh, so I think uh, yeah, I, I it, think there's more to do still. The 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 note it tries to leave on is particularly questionable. It wants yeah, it to is. have it wants to have a triumphant conclusion as as lots of these kind of documentaries do you want to end on like a high note an idea of of promise for the future and in 1995 you know they kind of wrap up with the sense of you know hey look tom hanks is portraying a progressive image of a gay man in philadelphia here you know we're on the upswing of things here but at the same time i like i found it really problematic in the way they have they have this montage of depictions in the early 90s of you know various gay characters and i'm like oh yeah you've got like you know the gus van sant stuff with my private idaho here and stuff it's like that's Just a really good favorite. one yeah but then you at the same time that comes in the same mix of depictions is like <laughs> Buffalo Bill in yes. Silence of the Lambs and you've got the crying game in there as well. It's like these two things are not the same. Not a and lot of foresight for their own time, really. To to, yeah. to equate them as the same is very bad. It's yeah. you're you're painting a a, a problematic picture here like equating and that's these supposed two things to be together its, that's supposed to be its rosy picture that everything's better is that it, silence of the lambs yeah before bill come on get out it's ignoring the why it's also ignoring the wider context of you know still the you know demeaning depictions of of gay characters in cinema and the overall still um uh awful um you know uh regard for the wider culture that you know the in the crisis of you know gay panic and, and such and the AIDS crisis ongoing almost the general mention of that that stuff where it counts I think general general negativity the air of negative and, and oppressiveness that was you know put upon the gay community at that time it, it try it's trying to act like now that we're having more visibility we're finally getting that proper treatment we deserve and it's like that was not the reality in the mid 90s it was no. still very much a bad time and even though we were reconciling with it more as as a culture it was not right yet and in some ways still still isn't yeah yeah yeah. and that should be said but obviously like you know now it's it's much more you know uh in, in a place of normalized and accepted uh and in our you know conversation and understanding and appreciation of um gay culture and gay mentality and gay way of being is is far more progressive and and as it should be today than it was in in the 90s which again just because it was we were more aware of it and you know acknowledging of it does not mean that we were accepting of it uh and the documentary does not reconcile with that reality at all yeah i'm i'm interested also in the international films left out so yeah i'd be more interested if it were broader of course that's so often the case with um film film history documentaries is that they're always so so very american centric i think the only one i've seen that tries to give equal weight to uh world cinema is um uh uh oh shit i'm forgetting his name uh the story of film by uh, oh mark cousins mark cousins yeah i, I was i want to say mark harris uh who <laughs> he didn't he he wrote the book that i talked about last week um uh, but yeah so mark cousins uh his mammoth documentary series the story of film which you I know, still haven't finished yet. Yeah, I'll say, same because it's so fucking big. <laughs> but it, it he really takes strides to cover the the 
breadth of world cinema. But, but even then, like, you know, he's still covering the major highlights. So there's certain areas like, you know, African cinema, South American cinema, it doesn't get covered as much in depth. And that's, that's also a product of the perpetuation of, you know, the more mainstream cultures that, you know, have have existed and dominated for you know 120 years he might do the best but uh you're still leaving things out um, I, well, I also it, have the book of that i have the yeah. book of that here i haven't paged it's, through yet so. it's just the nature of you know um having well, to make well, a documentary for well, one. well well what the culture reflects you know like you you obviously like if you want to highlight those things then you have to choose to ignore some of the broader things that people put forth otherwise and and also just the fact that there's more information about the things that have been purported and you know re acknowledged throughout time versus the ignored aspects of history so it's a it's a difficult balance and you know either you specialize in one or you try and include it but then you still end up not you know giving equal weight to it because it doesn't have equal weight necessarily in the 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 cultural conscious but you yeah. know you still should take efforts to promote those i don't know it's you know it's it's never like a there, there's no all-encompassing answer certainly and, uh, but... you you work with the experts you get to interview also so yeah um, you you work off the people you have available to you you might not have experts in in every field of every country so there, there are lots of contributing factors to why the things that are continually put forth as the, the, the so quote unquote canon of history, you know, are the way they are. But, uh, you know, we should take strides to be more inclusive, even if it's not all inclusive as we aim to be. The, the, the goal yeah. is to always aim to be better than, than we currently are. <laughs> always seek out and reach out for uh, a little bit more diversity and uh, i think this documentary could have done that but i think it's perfectly fine uh, it's going to be gone from criterion channel by the time this comes out by the way uh, yeah. that's fine sorry losers yeah <laughs> back but, into yeah. the celluloid closet it goes yeah it was it was a nice watch again like if you seek it out pay money for it i guess if if you're interested in in that idea but just understand it's not the whole picture uh, oh, yeah. One of the big things that, that I'll say uh, that kind of drops it considerably is that there's there's no mention of Midnight Cowboy, which is which... A, a landmark <laughs> piece of, of geese cinema, particularly in the context. Like, again, even if you want to say, oh, well, you know, they didn't want to talk about non mainstream, you know, Hollywood films, you know, it was, you know, like underground scene. I'm like, motherfucker, it won best picture that yeah. year. And it's not like they couldn't get a hold of like rights or like, you know, information with the people involved. Because director John Schlesinger is in the goddamn documentary talking about his follow up film. <laughs> <laughs> Why his follow up? Was it just too obvious? Do you not want to talk about it? Maybe. I don't know. I, I mean, they, it's like they go for plenty of other obvious examples. Like, again, it was, it was yeah. huge. It was controversial for the time. It put, you know, it, it really brought forth the conversation of gay depiction in cinema, you know, forward, even if it's not like explicitly about you know gay identifying characters like this it's it's very explicitly about that in a lot of ways and the depictions there didn't didn't we do an episode on midnight cowboy we did yeah go, and there's go. there's a whole like 30 years of movies that i feel like it just kind of skips over there there's there's a lot of important of. ones it's weird the emphasis they give to some but not to others like they talk about freebie and the beam uh, but they they don't talk about dress to kill, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of like very bad depictions of of you know trans characters and and killers and that and that whole shtick. Doesn't really get into trans identity hardly. Well, at all. And that's the thing is that they yeah. they because they gotta they gotta shrink the scope down. So it's like yeah. okay, so we're gonna talk about gay characters, not trans characters in this context, and also the 
the con you know the the cultural acceptance of of gay people versus trans people in the 90s was radically different than it is yeah, today so understandable but i get like like an example like midnight cowboy just baffles me because it's it's such an obvious central point to tackle so zero out of ten piece of shit <laughs> So your ceiling is a zero out of ten for this. If you don't talk about Midnight Cowboy in your film, then about gay history as cinema, I think in, so. in I any think film, I'm going to yeah. say in any film. If you don't if mention, you don't... <laughs> if you don't mention Midnight Cowboy, it's a piece of shit. Yeah, it's not, not worth my time. I really hope it comes up during Point Break. Um, I'm sure. Well, I'll link it some way. There's okay. there's definitely some some big ratso, you know, Bodhi energy there. <laughs> there's a link. Yeah. Let, let me let me let me think on it. Let me take a break and I'll and I'll come up with a less tenuous connection. Well, after a break, we'll be back with a point break. Stand up, stop. get into it then hell yeah we should uh, oh yeah all right it's good to finally get here uh is this the best american film would you say that we've covered this week it's definitely the best american film we've covered this week i would say sure. so. yeah um it's a classic it's an absolute like pulse pounding exhilarating awesome cheesy action-packed classic uh, it's just a joy isn't it yeah like i think that i don't know there's no irony here it's it's genuinely great all the dumbness of it is actually awesome uh, yeah i think it's <laughs> earnest and earned dumbness um i think it plays into what keanu really is and why he appeals to us way before we got there in a self-aware way the last four or five years uh i think it's already there i think it's already capturing exactly what keanu could do because um well I, I think back to like who he really was like an athletic guy he was like, playing hockey up in canada he was like a all-star goalie up there and uh they had like the tragic loss of his parents and like when to acting it, it has like that depth of like keanu which is like uh a little bit of a little bit of a hard life and um but but an athletic and really likable guy and you really want to root for him in every case yeah and and very capable he's Pretty, pretty silly. And again, it's, it's one of those funny things where it's like we, we think of him as that kind of like cliche California stoner kind of character that like this, this and Bill and Ted, I think, really kind of put forward. But I think this it demonstrates his his awareness of that and like the, the kind of pretend aspect of it, because you definitely see the on and off aspect of it when he's acting like like the you know surfer character that he's posing as versus the you know more serious up and coming you know very capable fbi agent who's also a little in over his head and you know too arrogant for his own good i think he does a really good job of, of communicating that character and kind of like riding that line and one of the elements that i think this you could overlook in it is the actual like 
struggle within his character of embracing this, you know, kind of, you know, freewheeling world and, you know, this, you know, connectivity with the, with the spirit of, you know, the, the, the ocean and stuff like that's, that feels very legitimate and like he's actually being taken by that, which is why he struggles so much reconciling with the, you know, these, these surfer slash, you know, bank robbers that he's, he's trying to pursue at the same time. And I guess that's an uh, important place to start was, is the, absurdity slash brilliance of the concept of point break yeah i mean it's an enduring concept if you know anything about me it's that i live my life a quarter mile at a time and that i'm a big vin diesel head a big uh, paul walker head and uh, all of that owes itself to this i've watched a, a series of 10 movies that are beloved only to me within my family and um they seem to be my thing even within our site i seem to be the only person really uh, gunning for fast and furious um, yeah, which uh, it, it carries those same themes. It's about this guy getting in over his head and then uh, kind of balancing the life between outlaw and uh, agent. And that's even up to F9. That's exactly what it, those movies are about. Isn't the first film a pretty naked rip on Point Break <laughs> I, even? Well, it's two things. I think it's a rip on Point Break and it's structured exactly the same. It has the same plot details down to the point that he goes out and has a tuna sandwich. I mean, like there's they're like that similar it's yeah and yeah he has a couple tuna sandwiches nobody eats them at that shop that's what he gets in fast furious uh uh that one's about like stealing vcrs i think <laughs> which seems like uh quaint now but uh the vcr market seems quaint now but that's what that's about um but it also came from a magazine article about car culture so that kind of spurned what they were doing there is they looked at like the action scenes of Point Break and uh, some of the other um, films kind of like in this ilk. And they're like, OK, let's focus in on the car part of it, like the man's relationship to the car and uh, racing culture, uh, which was big in an underground way, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and it kind of invents a lot of iconography around that, like the NOS uh, of all that. Um, it, it has that sillier kind of mode to it, which is just like summer movie, but not not as expert as Catherine Bigelow who I think is just really profoundly good as a director. Until she... Fast Five. I think Fast Five is genius. <laughs> do you think Catherine Bigelow would do a good Fast and Furious movie? I think she already did. Yeah, I think she did the best <laughs> one already, but uh, that's debatable. She she is a, a terrific director, and I think this is one of the first, like, like the, the more mainstream examples of proving her her uh, worthwhile as, you know, a commodity within the, the community. Being the first woman to ever win a directing Oscar, you know, I think she's she's earned her prestige. But long before that, with the works of, like, this and such, like, and a recent new discovery, uh, Near Dark, which I saw both of these films at the cinema in the Hollywood theater. We were supposed to watch this one together. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> bummed that we didn't get there, but we'll be getting back it was, together very soon. It was, it was a nice experience. I, I think, like I told you, I left an empty seat next to me. I looked over <laughs> to it occasionally. <laughs> during, during the highlights, <laughs> I thought about you. Could have but brought, it was, like, a cut it was out an, of Vin Diesel. Put it there. Yeah, I, I, I thought about I, I I did want to, but I just I ran out of time. I was, I was going to print off a picture of you and, and tape it to the seat next to me. <laughs> <That> <laughs> but I had, you, I had you there in spirit anyway. <laughs> But no, it was it was also another good, like Jaws, another great uh, theater experience with people who definitely hadn't seen the film before, who were who were shrieking and, and, and thrilling to all of the the right segments. But they were pumped. Uh, how could you oh, not yeah. be pumped? It's 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 an exhilarating film from from top to bottom there, and I, I think largely thanks to to Bigelow's direction, 
it's yeah. uh it's it's not just a film where it's like oh yeah these these actors are really good and the idea is solid and you got good writing and character work here it it gets by a lot on the capability of Bigelow's hand uh not only in the action scenes but in in the more you know laid back intimate sequences as well one of the things that's you know again it's because I think with an absurd you know kind of ridiculous concept like this a tough sell can be to buy into the innate you know ridiculousness and the um the bonds that that are forged here and believe the characters and their connection to to one another and in that way i would say this film succeeds in the same vein as something like a a john woo heroic bloodshed film does where the drama of it is based on the connection and the bond that these characters form with one another so the 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 tension you get of uh johnny utah and bodie kind of going at each other and you know like having this this uh you know familial connection it seems has been forged over time but also this you know adversarial nature based on the the two paths they've each gone down it creates that emotional conflict as well as you know uh you know actual physical conflict as well for the film and that's what makes it so much better to invest in than just the spectacle of it there's the feeling too like with gary Busey paired against um Keanu Reeves, you, you get a lot out of that as well. Uh, they make a very fun. This is um, this is such a good couple. Gary Busey role. Like, has Gary Busey ever been good in anything else? Like, not not just not in, this good, maybe. Uh, he's he's so spectacular for this role. His his absurdity is great. His his heightened aspect of his character, but it feels really like solidified and thought within it there. And he's such a a, a humorous <laughs> uh, element of the film. And but the relationship he develops with with Johnny is terrific. I think him and him and Keanu have a really great rapport, and them them working together to uh, un- uncover you know the the secrets of this surfing bank robbing gang, and you know kind of working at you know under and, and again it's like it's filled with a bunch of good really good side characters as well. I love the small bits of John C. McKinley you get here. <laughs> You're a real blue flame special, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> There are so many good quotes. It's such a quotable movie too. There's so many good lines. The structure I think is perfect. I think that structure of having a FBI guy like infiltrate this locals group and the surfing community. And of course the title referring to like the waves and, and what they're doing like out there surfing and how that ties back to what's on land. I think that's all just wonderful. Uh, and it's it's all plotted together. You're right. Really well weaved together. Like, so the, the developments from the understanding of why Pappas thinks that these guys would be surfers and how they uncover that they, you know, the, the evidence they find for, you know, per, you know, targeting the specific break, the people they hunt down there and, you know, all the while balancing the development with the, with the relationship between Bodhi's gang and also the, um, you know, romantic relationship that Keanu develops with Laurie Petty's character. Uh, and that's all very believable too. Uh, and, and done so well. I think she does a really terrific job of in, embodying the character of uh, Tyler and her connection with with Bodhi as well. And and the the general sense of camaraderie and interconnection in that surfing community there. Uh, again, it's it's all very well articulated. You could really say that Fast and Furious, the only changes they change surfing to racing community. I, I would say that's the only material change in the first movie. And then every time they diverge from that structure of 
okay, an outsider infiltrates the group, gets used to it, and tries to weave his way between his old life and his new life and separating himself from friends and becoming family with a found family. Every time it gets away from that, those films fail. But every time it gets closer and it just follows point break to the T, I think that's all you need from an action movie. I think this is uh, the perfect formula. I think this can be done for 20 more years. It'll be fine. And I think that's one of the strongest elements of it for sure. Like the moment you get where, you know, after the big foot chase scene where he's chasing down Bodhi after they they almost catch him from a bank robbery, which again, terrific. One of the most exhilarating chase sequences in any movie, you know, so well edited and and shot with that kind of tight feeling, you know, and as he gets there uh, at, at the end with the LA river, and he he just can't bring himself to shoot Bodhi. You get the emotion of that sequence and the frustration when he's firing off his gun, and then the the aftermath of that where he's getting chewed out by by Pappas for for missing, you know. When you know he's like you you either you know you, you don't miss in that situation. I think you're you said something like I think you're you know you're either getting sloppy or you're getting too close to these guys. And I know you know and I don't think you're getting sloppy. Yeah. Something um, along those lines. Something about like the dead presidents also kind of ties it together and gives it like an aesthetic theme to the robberies. I don't feel like it's brought up like in a heat conversation of like the best robbery films, but I think it has a lot of um, potential in that conversation. Visually, it's just fun. I think the president's mask. Also, they're yeah. very good masks. I'd they're like very, to say. very good. Yeah, you can you can definitely see those caricatures distinctly with it's, it's it's Nixon, LBJ, Carter and reagan yeah who were who were all together except they skipped ford because everyone forgets gerald ford <laughs> yeah uh, which is uh, i think it's i think it's funny to do that i think it's funny that they're ex-presidents oh, and, and, they, and they make a good fun of it you know they they're you know <laughs> we've been fucking you for years so you know a few more minutes won't make a difference <laughs> yeah it's i mean there, there's something in there about commentary and you know the president's fucking us over and stealing from the common people and everything it's it's a it's a fun gimmick and it helps set it aside from the kind of more banal you know masked you know uh voters and, and it's all within the same spirit of the film and i think it helps set it apart and again it, it really it it functions just as well as a kind of heist movie I guess it's not really like a heist because you don't have like yeah. the procedural elements of it, but there's definitely the tension you get when they're in the bank, particularly in the last one where they decide to go for the vault instead and they, they build up the tension of that. And it's, again, very well played out with how things go wrong I mean, the drama of it. Really, it kind of takes the elements out that can bore me for one of those, like those procedural things that you're talking about. It replaces them with action and other things so it's just I think a different kind it's not it's not your oceans a level assembly no. crew kind of like well and, and we talked about it in the sense of like when we talked about the sting a couple episodes back and that that's another example of a heist movie but without the um like the the, the heisting is kind of inversed in that one versus whereas this one has the, the the technical elements of it you know the breaking into the vaults and stuff but without the assembling and the meticulous you know you know components that generally define a heist film but again it works here because it's more focused on the character arcs and and the the connections there and then the all the all of the action which is so brilliantly framed um even in like you know i think the the surfing footage is particularly like uh, watching in the theater this time i'm like man they got some really good footage out on the water there like it is not easy to shoot in the surf like that that is that's some really great stuff that they got I watched the, the Olympics this year. Just like the surfing footage was so poor, like because <laughs> it's all from like a, you know a thousand feet away or whatever. It's, it's so goddamn boring to watch. So it's really hard actually to make surfing 
really exciting um so, mm-hmm. as a spectator sport i mean doing it and being in the water it's exciting 100 percent of the time but it, it gets there for me it gets what's actually interesting about surfing I, I would say even more than the surfing though the sports highlights the the spectacle <laughs> highlight of the film is I, even obviously like the even like their campfire football game it just feels good it feels like they're actually out there doing the thing you know yeah, that's that's a that's a great sequence as well. Of course, that's the same beach that they shot the the bit on the the, the Karate Kid oh, yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, same beach. Um, but yeah, that's a really great sequence and and really where they develop that connection with with Johnny for the first time. Um, yeah, just just so many like sequence highlights as well. You know, like just really well you know directed, paced out, storyboarded sequences. Uh, I think one of the biggest highlights, aside from the the foot chase, which we talked about uh, already, is the the raid on yeah. the house. Which, yeah, that's good uh, too. Uh, it's it's full of of brilliant tension and the different brawls, and particularly, uh, I think the lawnmower bit is unforgettable, especially after seeing it on the big screen. That was a moment that people really jumped at. Oh yeah, and and it, it even got me again because I've I've always been like. Oh, growing up, I always hated the lawnmower. I didn't like mowing the lawn because that thing scared me. Because if a rock got caught in it, you felt like the thing was gonna like just fucking, you know, explode or attack you. Yeah, Yeah. like there's there's like horror movies built around that that idea. It's a it's a scary piece of machinery, I think. And so like and and that sequence in Point Break just like really captures the the <laughs> intense fear that it has again like where he's getting his face pushed up near the blades like that thing is gonna fuck you up and uh see seeing it that big on the screen like feeling like it's coming right at you that that was definitely how that scene was intended i think also the big showpiece moment of the film of course must play must play perfectly on the screen and i you know which one i mean there's the absolutely the, jump. the yeah. skydiving yeah the skydiving is is probably the euphoric highlight of the entire film you, of the 90s let's just call it the, yeah, yeah yeah of the whole of the whole decade yeah um I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, it's just one of my favorite piece of action film, just that skydive and how it feels. And it's yeah. and it's so well incorporated footage. Like even watching it, uh, like for for I don't know how many times now, and then seeing it blown up like that, I can't tell you what the real stuff is and what the you know in studio like like air machine whatever how they yeah. how they shot the close up stuff is. I can't tell you the difference between that. It's so well incorporated together and the score i think does a whole lot of heavy lifting there for creating this kind of serenity throughout it that that really gives you this other otherworldly like unrivaled experience that the characters are expressing at the same time there uh and and just this this complete euphoria that that they have jumping out and you know coming down to earth like that uh you you get that sense it comes through entirely and and then of course followed then by the juxtaposition of the later skydiving sequence which is this thrill as they're plummeting towards earth and they're struggling <laughs> some, some of it the, yeah. the, the, the ridiculous of it the balls to have like keanu you know like the, the the implication that he's jumping out of a plane without a parachute and hoping he catches up to him it's it's fantastic and again like you, you already had enough exhilarating like stunt work and interesting set pieces prior to this did the film need like a whole like parachute you know uh, or like like a, a you know skydiving climax it'd you still know? be great but 
it would it would be great without it but man is it the cherry on top of an already you know exhilarating and you know high you know high octane film you still look at the action films today like mission possible fallout which is about critically acclaimed but like the skydiving piece there so structured on what happened here i think you see that in a lot of films i, I remember around like the year this came out my dad going skydiving and like i say the footage of that just terrible like just blurs in the sky from the 90s right and so uh also very hard to shoot properly and the coverage is as good as you say it should be said as well as that the the way that they communicate the skydiving is uh entirely unreal and impractical you can't yeah. talk in in free fall uh you can't hear anything uh and you fall much faster than the film indicates have you done there. a skydiving no, no, oh. but uh, there was an episode of Mythbusters where they where they kind of <laughs> go over a lot of the things here, and it's interesting what they proved and didn't prove when it came to the skydiving. Uh, like for instance, like you you can't um, you know talk or hear anyone in in free fall like that. So that that was a debunk thing, and the the amount of time they're falling is also like kind of a you know changed for the movie yeah. you know so the pacing of it is. But apparently, if if you did jump out of a plane without a parachute. And and you streamlined yourself. You could catch up to someone in free fall like that. That's pretty cool. Take, yeah. So that so that's a cool thing. So it's not entirely unreal. It's just a little magicked up for the movies. Well, movies always have that kind of movie making where they're they're slowing and speeding things up for us. So. Oh, and and you believe it in, in yeah. how it's presented and the context there. Again, it's like one of those things where like the the like them talking in you know free fall like that it's one of those things that it just makes sense to our brains even though we know it's not real like i think one of the primary examples i go to is the way you see lightning and thunder depicted in movies that's not how lightning like they don't come at the same time in reality for yeah you know but it looks wrong to us if you do that in the movies for some reason so they just they put it together and our brains like ah that seems right you're right, because like the thunder is telling us how far away the lightning is technically. So well, because uh, because light travels yeah. faster than sound does, so that's why you see lightning before you hear it every yeah. time. But in movies, that that seems off to us for whatever reason. So <laughs> they put it together, and that's how you see it in every film. It's and now that I've told strange, people yeah. that, they're probably freaking the hell out and realizing that everything they've seen in the movies is a lie. Yeah, it's, it always has been. Yeah, yeah, none of it's real. <laughs> I, I like Point Break a lot. I don't think we'll have a very further, deeper discussion about what Point Break means or, or what it what it's doing, but I, it's, I just think it's so great that we had to cover it. It's really fantastic, again, action direction, like from, from Catherine Bigelow, from top to bottom. It's just one of the best action films categorically like that, not just from the 90s, not from, you know, any decade prior, but period. It just has some of the best, you know, direction and, and sequences of any action film. It's got brilliant character work. Like, so you're invested in everything that's happening up until then, from the main dynamics to the romance relationships to the side characters. You know, it's it's a ridiculous plot that is entirely believable and that you buy into and are there for, along for the ride for. You 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 revel in in the ludicrous nature of it. It's just such a joy to to get behind. And like I said, it's imminently quotable as well filled with these great ridiculous one-liners and stuff like not, not even necessarily one-liners but like you know these great like in character you know like like quips or or yeah. whatever that you just uh, are are hilarious but also fitting and and uh, you know appropriate and uh help help lend uh, an identity to the characters all the more so 
What do you think of Catherine Bigelow, um, even outside of Point Break? What's your characterization of her direction and what she does? Um, I haven't seen as many of her later films, okay. um, but uh, but you know, I I find I have found the ones I have seen to be less interesting than the than the genre work like this and, and Near Dark, like I just saw. Near Dark was a real like like revelation to see for the first time. That was. Uh, I, I'd, I'd never seen it or even knew that much about it. I knew it was like a vampire film by Catherine Bigelow. And I'm like, this is just the most <laughs> awesome thing ever. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's really cool that she works out of genre expectations for what women would usually do. Like she made a uh, point break, obviously then near dark, a vampire horror thing, then the hurt locker and the she, submarine movie with Harrison Ford and, she um, she has an interesting perspective again like like she she definitely has this this uh inkling for like uh for action directing in particular and more you know male centric drama drama which uh is an interesting perspective to have um you know Hurt Locker was the film that got her her, her Oscar and then she went on to do films like Zero Dark Thirty and such so a lot of the stuff surrounding the Middle Eastern conflict which uh not not as interesting to me but i think oh, by nature really not, yeah but i think more so by nature of the the blandness of the setting visually and uh, my like and, and and the uh kind of complex and uh like like politics of of that whole conf- I, I don't know i there's so much less i feel like to really wrap your head right it's such a messy deal that i i i feel somewhat ambivalent to any film about that that uh region area conflict and whatnot so i don't know if it's innately you know catherine bigelow's uh, fault in there but i do think from my recollection that hurt locker is better than zero dark 30 and then i didn't see and, detroit well hurt locker may be better than like any movies from those conflicts, yeah yeah as, as, uh, as far as all of those ones go i think probably from my hazy recollection hurt locker is the best of them but it's probably better than jarhead that's <laughs> what we're oh, saying yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which, Again, uh, I'd, I'd have to go back. If I was going to go back and rewatch any of them, it would probably be Hurt Locker. Uh, yeah. I want to see more movies from her. I would love I don't, to see. I, I have a stumbling block with her, though, with a few things. Um, like K-12, which is just the submarine movie with Harrison Ford, and that's all there is to it. Um, of course, you put him in a submarine, you want to go see that. But it's like a Russian submarine movie made for American audiences. Or I think of Detroit, which uh, should, by rights, probably work for me and be something I'm interested in that kind of protest and um, I don't know that those kind of mass um, protests and large groups of people make me anxious already. Uh, I, I'm, I just was so uncomfortable watching it. it. It does nothing to interest you any further than you would already be in that. Like, however you feel about Detroit, I think you'll, you'll kind of carry that through the whole movie. Um, yeah. There's something missing in some of her films. I don't know what it is, but I, uh, in Point Break, that there's nothing missing for me. Um, there, there, there's a a a heart there, and a sincerity, and a uh, a sense of humor. I think that other films, like the more prestige films that she's done as of late, don't have. Yeah, maybe uh, it's the ones that are like aiming for that same prestige as Hurt Locker, and it's just like a, uh, it it maybe it feels cynical to make Detroit soon after then, and and try to like make that like a from a white woman doing this thing about like the, you know, sixties Detroit and black people in Detroit. Maybe that's, maybe it wasn't the lens that it needed. I'll say that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but I also don't have a lot of 
interest in seeing it. I like it's just her name that really attracts me to it, and that's that's, that's kind of signal to me that I'm like, ah, maybe I I shouldn't if I'm really only wanting to see this in the context of Catherine Bigelow directed this, which is fair. I think to like watch her career, and I think she's yeah. interesting, but I think that's the only interest I have in Detroit, unfortunately. I don't I don't know if she's got anything on the horizon soon. I hope she does because I think of you know like like in, particularly of. Uh, contemporary female directors you know her her career has been one of the more significant and interesting to watch and uh you know i don't want to see it drop off it's been like five years since detroit almost so oh geez i hope that didn't end like uh the streak with her but i know she's I don't, been, I don't uh, think producing so. some things she produced a uh, triple frontier which is pretty basic military action movie for netflix uh with with good action and actually maybe maybe her advising had something to do with why that was uh, at least semi-respected as an action film. Yeah. Ho- hopefully, we'll see something. I, again, I, I have no idea what she'd be interested in in coming back to, because uh, again, she's distanced from the genre stuff like Near Dark and Point Break. But and and I don't want to box her into that either, because <laughs> obviously it's been thirty years. So you know this. But this era of directors also getting old. She's probably in her fifties or sixties now, and um, uh, women careers don't last that long usually but i hope she stays around a little longer well and i guess it should be noted that she was able to break through because of her relationship with uh james cameron as a director yeah. uh and that particularly gave her you it know produced a, a, point break right uh yeah he's a producer on point break he also helped produce uh near dark because uh, he even like like basically like it was right off the back of aliens and essentially i could tell you that near dark is aliens but vampires instead that sounds like, good. It's got all the same crew, like Lance Henriksen and Bill Paxton. You know, they're they're all there. And, uh, but it also, like, just to sell you a bit more on it, it's also like a a, a western setting, like a little bit, oh, shit. like kind of contemporary western aesthetics going on there. It's like right up your alley. You're gonna love it. Yeah, I, I think I should, and I will be watching that in October. So maybe we come back to it. At least I'll come back to it. Uh, I would I would love to. Maybe if we do, I'll tell my. Uh, near dark story then i'll save it for okay. that because yeah, save the, it. The, the screening of it had a special surprise that was quite entertaining oh wow okay yeah save that one and we'll come back to it at least and if not as a feature we'll come back to it this is probably we're probably cursing ourselves because just like with point break we're probably going to be like myriad delays that p- put off us talking about near dark because i don't know i, I think i think Catherine bigelow might be cursed if we talk about her too much prior to actually just doing it yeah we, we may curse ourselves and, and October will be weird because you'll only be there for a couple of weeks. I have a guest host filling in for a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, speaking of, we uh, next week we're, we're having a guest host as well. We'll be talking about uh, Rafifi Butt Steven. So, Butt Steven, yeah. Butt Steven, he will, uh, I guess, be there with us, unfortunately. Calvin so, and David Butt Steven. Butt Steven, Steven. Not, exactly. Not with Steven, yes. <laughs> Yeah, important <laughs> distinction that we have to make there. Uh, his, his first time uh, getting saddled on here on the show. So is it really uh, still his first time? He's on, been with on this show. Like... Yeah. Uh, you, name name me another time. It's because he waffles so much. We asked him like yeah. ten times prior to this, and he's like, "I'm up for anything." And we're like, "Okay." The... <laughs> well, then name something, Stephen. I asked him name any movie, and eventually he looked toward his shelf and saw Rafifi. So that's a movie that we're going to cover because it's on Stephen's shelf. 
It's a good one. It's it's a yeah. great one. I would say. I think we'll all have lots to say about it. I can't remember. Have you seen Rafifi before? Yeah, yeah. I, okay, I like, okay. I like we all like cool. it. We're all on board. Cool. With we're it, all so. we're all there. It's a great film. Uh, lots to talk about. I'm I'm excited to to talk about it and have Stephen on here for the first time. Uh, I'll get to duke it out with him over some things. Say some words that uh been saving up for a while. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. <laughs> Looking forward to that. We'll, we'll get that out. The gloves are coming off next week. Uh, so, And we've covered a couple of festivals where most of my watches have been. So Stephen and I will be able to actually talk about most of the new movies I've seen the last month. So yeah, I'll, pro- I'll probably get to kick back in the beginning of the show and put my feet up while you guys kind of take care of things there. There you go. So uh, look forward to that next week or don't, you know, because Stephen. So. <laughs> but Stephen, yes. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually, at Calvin Kemp and at David A. Punch. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show, The Daydream Cast, with Pablos and Brogan, not to mention uh, Ranking the Monsters with Calvin, but Steven as well. Uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can. We'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. Candlesticks in the dark, visions of bodies being burned. The hook gon' be the coldest pimp slap. Coat rack for man's skin. Let it air dry. Swiss cheese, the brother already half dead. Brain leaking out a hole in his forehead. Lobotomies like pills. Get it.